time for Swordplay. Alex, prosperity televangelist and presidential spiritual advisor Paula White has said there is a demonic network which seeks to block Donald Trump from winning the 2020 election. Well, that's an interesting on interesting take on the DNC. I always wondered what those initials stood for. Demonic Network Convention. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. A new series for us on the podcast. Go back, read 1 Thessalonians. That will help you prepare for the questions that we are about to ask. And as with any book that we start, we always do an introduction. So Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about the author who wrote 1 Thessalonians? Yeah, so uh, right there, 1 verse 1 tells us Paul, but he also has uh, Silvanus, which is uh, another name for Silas, who's one of his uh, traveling companions, and Timothy. They're with him, but it seems as though Paul is the primary composer of this epistle. There are some liberal schools who have challenged the Pauline authorship of the Thessalonian correspondence, both first Pseudo and second. Pseudo-Paul. Pseudo-Silas. Pseudo-Timothy. That's right. <laughs> the thing is, the style, the vocabulary, the theology, they are thoroughly of Paul. So uh, pretty well stands the reason First Thessalonians was written by Paul. Yeah, that's an easy one. Well, how about this, Nick? Destination. What do we know about the city and the church in Thessalonica? Well, the city itself was established in 315 B.C. by Cassander. He was a general of Alexander the Great. And he actually named, Cassander named the city after his wife, Thessalonica. And she was a daughter of Philip of Macedon as well as a sister of Alexander the Great. Now, the city had one of the best natural harbors. The famous uh, Via Ignatia ran through the city. And in Paul's day, it was a city that was bustling with commercial enterprise. It boasted a population of about 100,000 people. Wow. The church itself was uh, newly founded, and that establishment is narrated for us in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And while Luke records that Paul was in Thessalonica preaching in the synagogues for three weeks, the duration of Paul's stay there could have been longer than just those three weeks recorded. Most date Paul's ministry in Thessalonica around 48 to 49 AD, which would put us a um, decade and a half, a little more than from Jesus on the cross and all that. However long the stay was, Paul's ministry is cut short by Jewish opposition. Again, that's recorded there in the book of Acts. Speaking of the book of Acts, Alex, what do we know about the Thessalonians from the book of Acts? Yeah, so just a quick recap of what happens in the book of Acts. Paul goes to Thessalonica on his second journey, and some of the Jews at the synagogue were persuaded by Paul that Jesus is the Christ, but it sounds like a lot more Jews were um, not persuaded. And the majority of the converts then come from the God-fearing Greeks, and also what Luke calls the leading women of the town. Those are probably Greek women from noble ruling classes, so they were 
rich. And there was extreme opposition from the Jews. Jews here doesn't mean all Jews. Some of the Jews were persuaded, like I mentioned, but rather Jews here means the unbelieving Jews. And so they were jealous of how many Greeks wanted to follow Paul. And they orchestrated a fiery mob, which is interesting because it shows how much influence they had on a Gentile city. And also, they, as unbelieving Jews, continue to commit the same heresy of those who crucified Jesus, saying, we have no king but Caesar. Here are these troublemakers turning the world upside down, saying there's another king, Jesus, another king besides Caesar. So they take Jason, who was probably a synagogue leader. Uh, He's targeted specifically. He puts up Uh, Jason puts up a pledge, which is maybe like a bail, and no one is imprisoned on that occasion. But the unbelieving Jews, they don't give up. They keep following Paul, and they oppose him next at the city of Berea. And we see that Silas and Timothy, they remain at Berea, but because of opposition, they send Paul on ahead of them to Athens. Silas and Timothy apparently travel around Macedonia just in general after that, so that would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea before coming back to Paul and meeting up with him when he is at Corinth. Now, on Paul's third missionary journey, he passes through Macedonia again, and he's exhorting the churches there, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He goes to Greece, and then because of opposition, he he backtracks through Macedonia again, uh, and his backtracking may or may not have included stops at the church that time. He was trying to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, so he may not have stopped at the churches again. So around that time, that third missionary journey, two Thessalonian men stand out. They join with Paul. Their names are Aristarchus and Secundus. Now, we don't know much else about Secundus, but Aristarchus, he especially sticks it out with Paul. He ends up accompanying him later to Rome during his first Roman imprisonment. And so he's there when Paul gets shipwrecked along the way. And Paul, in other letters, he calls Aristarchus a fellow prisoner in Colossians. He calls him a fellow worker in his letter to Philemon. And on this third missionary journey, we see Timothy joining him again. And this is perhaps when Timothy gives him the good report about the Thessalonians that we'll see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So that's what we were able to dig out of the book of Acts, Nick. Now... This goes into the question of timing. Nick, let's talk about the date. When do you think Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians? So in terms of external evidence, uh, dating Paul's stay in Corinth is done with what's called the Delphi inscription. And that provides us with information about uh, Gallio's proconsulship, which is actually mentioned in Acts chapter 18 and verse 12. And uh, he assumes office, according to the Delphi inscription, in the summer of 51 A.D., and he serves until the summer of 52 A.D. And so that would put the end of Paul's 18-month stay in Corinth sometime during that year. And so the earliest Paul would arrive in Corinth would have been approximately 50 A.D. Most agree that Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians during his time in Corinth. That would date the Thessalonian correspondence, 1st Thessalonians in particular, within the range of 50 to 52 AD. Uh, What else you have for the date for us, Alex? So 
here's what we see as far as internal evidence within First Thessalonians. We know that Paul was at, was at Athens when he sent Timothy to check on the Thessalonian church. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And Timothy's report that he brought back was positive. And this letter is Paul's response to that report. We get that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, the intertextual evidence, when we compare this to the book of Acts, Paul does have a three-month stay in Greece towards the end of his third missionary journey. That's Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. So that may be when Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. And so the question is, was Paul still at Athens when, because Athens is in Greece, when Timothy returns? And if we're using Acts chapter 20, then according to verses 4 and 5, Paul's entourage, including Timothy, they met back with him at Troas. So Timothy would be sent out from Athens, but then he meets back with Paul at Troas. So perhaps Paul gets the good report from Timothy at Troas. That's my thought. If so, then Paul is writing this letter as he heads back to Jerusalem. So he's not yet arrested, and thus you have no Paul prisoner of Christ Jesus references or being in chains for the gospel. So that would be um, a little bit later than uh, what you have most other commentaries saying. So they'll say, you know, when he was staying at Corinth, he wrote this letter. The reason I disagree with that um, is because it says, it doesn't say Timothy was sent to Corinth. It says that, I mean, sent to first to Macedonia while Paul was in Corinth. Uh, they had stayed back. So when they were staying back in Macedonia, Paul goes on to Athens, and then he goes on to Corinth, and then Timothy and Silas come down from Macedonia to meet him at Corinth. And so, not exactly sent, but uh, maybe later on he was sent again, and we just don't have record of that. So that's possible too. Any thoughts, Nick? No, that's hey. It could it either doesn't make a big difference. Just a few years. Good, good alternate uh, idea there. Thanks. Well, let's get down to the purpose of the letter, though. Uh, Paul wrote this letter for a reason, and there are lots of uh, ideas out there. So what do you think, Nick? Why did Paul write 1 Thessalonians? Yeah, most agree that Paul writes 1 Thessalonians because of the positive report that Timothy brought concerning the Thessalonian church's faith and growth, as you mentioned there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, there's other internal evidence that others cite that identify several other purposes as well. One is to encourage these Christians during intense persecution, chapters 2, verse 14, 3, verses 1 through 4, um, bear that out. Uh, Paul writes to respond to criticism concerning his ministry among the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, very emotional uh, plea there from Paul to the Thessalonians. He writes to address Christian ethical standards, which may have slipped. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, uh, about uh, holiness and, and what that looks like. He writes to address questions concerning the return of Christ in light of recent deaths among the Thessalonian Christians. Real strong emphasis there at the end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And he also writes to provide instruction concerning proper use of spiritual gifts it comes near the end of chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. A good practice when you're reading a book of the Bible, especially a New Testament epistle, is to try and identify a purpose statement in that book. 
And I think the closest that we get to a purpose statement in Thessalonians are the prayers of Paul. He has one in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians as well. In 1 Thessalonians, it's chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, which contain a prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonian brethren. And he prays that they would increase and abound in love for one another, and that God would establish their hearts in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. So, in light of Jesus' return, Paul is exhorting these Christians to holiness and to be firm in the faith. In short, he is seeking to strengthen the faith of these relatively new converts. So yeah. all that factors into the purpose of the book. What say you, Alex? No, no, I think that's a, a good overview, and it is hard to find a singular purpose statement. Um, uh, the things you listed uh all things that he spends time talking about. So it's almost like he has a multiple purposes going on, you know, things that were brought back to the report that he thinks will help them, uh, especially concerning the rise of persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, why don't you tell us about the transmission of the text? Do we have First and Second th- Thessalonians in the right order? Was first really written first? Was second yeah. really written second? Tell us that's, about that. Yeah, that's a good question. Because some have suggested that the letter order should be flipped. Second uh, Thessalonians was written and arrived before First Thessalonians. Uh, the current order that we have them in right now in our Bibles comes to us by way of tradition. And neither letter directly claims to come before or after the other. Though uh, an earlier letter may have maybe hinted at in Second Thessalonians. Upon a close reading of the epistles, some have suggested that Second Thessalonians should come before First Thessalonians. And uh, Douglas Moo, D.A. Carson, in their book Introduction to the New Testament, they list the, the various reasons why people have made that conclusion. Uh, there's four or five different reasons. I just, there's a couple that I'll cite here. One is persecution and the way that Paul writes about the persecution. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 7, the persecution is spoken of as a present reality, whereas in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 14, he writes about it as though it is past. Uh, he talks about it, the persecution that they suffered. The second has to do with Timothy's mission. Uh, Paul sent Timothy with uh, 2 Thessalonians. This is the idea here, he, that, that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, sent it with Timothy, and then Timothy comes back, brings that good report to Paul, and that's when he writes 1 Thessalonians, citing the good report that Timothy brought with him in 3 verses 1 through 5. So those are just a couple of the reasons why some would argue for flipping the order. Here's the thing, and Moo and Carson, they talk about this in their book. There's, these arguments are by no means conclusive, and uh, they, Moo and Carson, they answer each of these and the other arguments that are presented for reverse in the order. Here's the thing. I think the current sequence of the books, probably accurate. Sure, First yeah. and Second Thessalonians. Um, anything you want to say about that, Alex? No, I agree. I think the current order of the books is accurate that first is first and second is second but it's good to to think through it because that might not always be the case especially with other letters like john's epistles uh, uh first and second peter uh, 
so some you know even even the gospels which order were they written in they're ordered matthew mark luke and john doesn't mean they were written in that order right so always good to think through that so uh what else do we have nick let's uh dig into the text here okay let's get started yeah, Paul talks about um, your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, did, Paul, Alex, does Paul intentionally group together faith, hope, and love in this introduction? You know, Nick, it may be a distinction without a difference, but the famous you know statement from First Corinthians thirteen thirteen is ordered. Uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So most people are familiar with that passage, uh, but the statement in Thessalonians is faith, love, and hope. So the order is a little different, and while it may appear to be standard introduction material, we do have the exact same order repeated again in the letter. So he mentions it here in chapter 1, but he'll mention it again at the end in chapter 5, verse 8, and Paul will say there, we, don't, we, we put on the breastplate of faith and love with the helmet the hope of salvation so i think the order does seem significant placing the emphasis on that which follows last so in corinthians love was the emphasis it followed last here hope is the emphasis it follows last was it hope then that the thessalonians needed most in their current situation maybe so especially if persecution has ramped up over the years right we saw persecution from day one but how intense is it getting, especially by the time Paul writes his letter? And uh, in chapter 1, it's hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So perhaps Paul has in mind the mediation role then of Jesus and our salvation, especially when considering the helmet of salvation being mentioned as the hope in chapter 5. So Jesus and God's presence then gives us hope, hope that our sins will be forgiven, Christ himself being our defense attorney and mediator through which we can boldly approach the throne of God. It may be that uh, which Paul is honing in on, especially if, uh, like you said, in possible situations, maybe some of the brethren at Thessalonica have recently died. They're wondering about the afterlife and the return of Christ and the resurrection. You know, all of that, that's the Christian hope, the hope of what is to come. So there may be some intentionality there with his grouping of those things. What do you think, Paul? Uh, what do you think, Nick? We keep wanting to call each other Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Freudian slip. Um, <clears throat> you're right. Uh, you're right. Paul frequently groups these qualities together. Um, and you've noted uh, 5 verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We also see Colossians 1, 4, and 5. He lists them there as well. And so given the frequency, I am inclined to say that, yes, Paul does intentionally group these three qualities together. And there's a good observation about the, the order here. I think that's right on. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that these, these are motivators for Christian actions, specifically work, labor, and steadfastness uh, is, is motivated, springs from faith, hope, and love for these Thessalonian Christians. I think the same thing is true for us even right, today right. as well. Let's talk about verse 4 here. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Ooh, interesting, chosen. Alex, how did God choose the Thessalonians? Right. <laughs> well, this kind of wording about choosing and God's choice... This usually spirals into debates about Calvinistic predestination or Arminian foreknowledge. 
However, that's church history. And before the history of the church, there was the history of Israel. And that history, the, his, the history of Israel, that formed the backdrop for the New Testament. And so under the law of Moses, the Israelites were God's chosen people, a people for his own possession. They were his inheritance. These people God created through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these people did not come from Babel. He stole Abraham out of the Chaldeans, which did come from Babel, and he started a new people. And so the nations separated at Babel, they were given to other gods. You can see Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, chapter 32, verses 7 through 9. Hopefully you're reading the English Standard Version for that one. And so the nations, though separated from God, though divided out at Babel, given over to other gods, they were not forgotten. And Yahweh, God, the Most High, he would one day rise up and claim them once again for his own. Read Psalm 82. Again, hopefully from the ESV. So I will. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so through Jesus, disciples from every nation are to be made. It's a great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And when disciples are made, that transfers those people from the other kingdoms and rulerships, those dominions of darkness, into God's kingdom, the kingdom of light. So in short, God chose the nations then through the gospel to be his own people. And should they, the nations, accept his choice upon hearing the gospel, they simply need to be baptized and taught his commands. So the transferring of kingdoms then and the transferring of possession, that takes place in baptism. And that's the backdrop for God's choosing. Not Calvin, not Arminianism, not church history, the Old Testament, Israel's history. What do you think, Nick? You're right that this is a, it's a theologically loaded word uh, here. And uh, we can get caught up in the Calvinism versus Arminianism argument and all that. The word here, chosen, in the original means simply that God selected, he chose, he picked some out. And so Christians are literally the chosen ones. We are chosen, as you said, out of the world, out of the nations. And we choose solidarity with God's kingdom. I think Paul may shed some more light on this in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13. He says there that we are chosen to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Uh, so this election or selection, it takes place at the same time as the calling. And for Paul, he continues in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14, God called you to this, to that selection, to that choosing through our gospel, he says. So, in the mind of God, this moment of selection takes place in eternity with God, while at the same time, it occurs in time for us. And so, since God, he lives in the present tense, the I am, uh, there's no time difference for him. The moment I choose him is the same moment that he chose me. Yeah, that's the way that I look at this, at least, when I think about choosing an election and all that. Um, a lot more could be said about it. Sure. But, uh, well, I mean, and that, that choice was not available 
in the old covenant uh the nations as a whole could not choose yahweh they were separate and that was the whole point of the law was to keep them separate from israel and how would that would that be a permanent solution or does god desire too to have them into his kingdom and so his desire to have them in his kingdom that is a choice that he has indeed made and he alluded to throughout the old testament very very good interesting thoughts that we definitely need to keep dwelling on and not to get pigeonholed in the calvinism predestination debate because uh that's not that's not the right context <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to verse five here where paul talks about uh, our gospel came to you not only in word Oh, that's an interesting little phrase there. What did Paul mean about the gospel coming not in word only? Yeah, for uh, my perspective, at least two things seem to be in mind. First, the idea of power and in the Holy Spirit. He says the word came to you, uh, gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and through the Holy Spirit. And so that probably conveys the idea of miracles and signs. This was... Uh, standard upon the first century church the uh, apostles and the disciples they went out and along with their message the spirit confirmed their gospel through signs and miracles and wonders mark sixteen twenty makes clear that that was uh, how the spirit was working he was confirming the disciples and their message through God's work through them, through the Holy Spirit. These signs may be what Paul means later in chapter 2, verse 4, when he says uh, we have been approved by God uh, with the gospel message. And so that might be part of it. The second definitely might have, uh, definitely might. <laughs> Paul comes, he says, he came not in word only, but he backed up his message by caring for them, the way he acted and lived while he was among them. He'll say in 2.7 that he was gentle with them like a mother and her baby. In 2.11, though, he'll say he was encouraging to them like a father. So when they showed up, they didn't try to flatter anyone. They weren't there for money. They forfeited their right as apostles to receive support from them. And they worked double hard to support themselves and to set up a good example. So he, they brought them the message of the gospel, but then they also showed them by example in the way they lived in the way they treated them, and they also had the confirming of that message through the power of the Holy Spirit, miracles and signs and wonders. What do you think, Nick? No, you're, you're right. The rest of verse 5, it does explain what's going on here with uh, the power, which would be the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, um, and then also the, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, I believe, to convict and call, enlighten the benighted eyes of the mind, and then also with full conviction, the full conviction of the spokesman, and that would relate to how they lived among the Thessalonians. I think that's, that's all how Paul explains it there. Sure. Well, moving on to verse 6, uh, Nick, tell us how did the Thessalonians imitate uh, both Paul and the Lord in the way that they received the word? Right. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. It seems as though... What Paul is saying is, by following the words, the lives, the examples of the Apostle Paul and his company, that's the us there, by following the words, lives, and examples of them, then the Thessalonians understood that they were following the Lord. 
Uh, that's that's how this works. Is there's this unbroken chain, as it were, from the Lord to the apostolic company and those that are with them to the church. Uh, contextually, what does that look like? Well, Paul mentions a couple things here. One, they receive the word with much affliction. So suffering, contextually, is mentioned. <clears throat> I uh, read an article. It was a an op-ed piece in USA Today, scathing op-ed piece, by the CEO of Open Door. His name is David Curry, and Open Door is an organization that works with persecuted Christians the world over. And so David Curry talked about how the American church is feeding itself to death while the world starves. As we speak, our siblings the world over suffer unspeakable evil while most American Christians are apathetic to their plight, unless it were to happen in our own backyard. And he talks about that. If, if the atrocities that were taking place in Nigeria or Sri Lanka were to happen in Nashville, man, it'd be nonstop 24-hour coverage of that in the mainstream media. Here's the thing. Acceptance of the gospel brought persecution upon the Thessalonian Christians, the Thessalonian church. They received the word with much affliction. The normative reaction from the world to Christians is hatred. That's what Jesus told us in the Gospel of John. So to imitate the disciples, every one of which, by the way, faced a martyr's death except for John, and to imitate the Lord, who endured, by the way, the most intense suffering, the most painful method of execution ever devised by the mind of man, to imitate them, that means to suffer. He also talks about, though, they received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit is mentioned here. Just as much a part of the, just as much a part of imitating the Lord and the apostles as suffering is the joy that only the Holy Spirit can can bring. And I want us to remember that in the Gospel of Luke 10 and verse 21, we are told that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And I think we should too. I think too many Christians, someone's put it this way, too many Christians walk around as though they have been baptized in pickle juice. All right, We need to restore this joy of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of suffering and affliction. So I think those are two key ways that Paul mentions here about how we can imitate uh, the apostles, their company, and the Lord. Uh, what say you, Alex? No, I, I think that was a good good coverage all around. It is interesting to think about other parts of the world, the part where receiving the gospel does bring very real, immediate, physical persecution and what that would look like if it came into our own backyard and how much that would help us to view Christianity as a whole in the world. I appreciate those thoughts. So let's, uh, this bleeds over into verse 7, uh, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So what does that mean, Alex? Does that mean that the Thessalonians were actually stronger Christians than the Philippians and the Bereans? You know, that's a good question. Each of the Macedonian congregations seemed to have their own strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Paul, Paul highly praises the Philippian church for their giving and financial support of his work. Uh, they apparently were the only ones to share in the ministry of giving and receiving among all of Macedonia. That's in Philippians 4.15. But also the Bereans, 
they were paid high respect because they had the largest group of receptive Jews to the gospel called more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica. That's Acts 17.11. So they received the word eagerly and examining the scriptures uh, daily to see if these things were so. And then here in chapter 1, verse 7, we have the Thessalonians being exalted for their perseverance in persecution, being an example for all of Macedonia and Achaia, which would include Athens and Corinth. So when we examine all of these churches from the macro perspective, I think we see the body of Christ, and that the body of Christ is made up of many parts, each with its own strength, yet interdependent upon the rest of the body for continued strength and growth. What do you think, Nick? You know, this reminds me of what Peter says over in 1 Peter 5 and verse 9 when he writes to the churches in Asia Minor. And he talks about how the, the brotherhood throughout the world is suffering the same sufferings as the church to which he wrote. And I think that's the case here with the churches in Macedonia, it would seem. Um, with the Thessalonian brethren, word of their suffering had spread, and perhaps their suffering was more intense than elsewhere. I mean, Philippi... Uh, I don't think we have a record of any persecution of, of that congregation. Berea, they had some, though it seemed focused on Paul in Acts 17. And so I think when the Christians in Berea and when the Christians in Philippi heard of how their brethren are bearing up under this intense suffering, I think their faith was, was built up. And now the report of what their fervent, steadfast faith has produced around them in Macedonia. No doubt that was a faith builder for the Thessalonian congregation. Built them up as well to know, hey, their their brethren have noted their example. So Right. And that's uh maybe related to the previous question as well, an application for us today, right? When we hear of suffering Christians around the world, usually it's um a response that we have for sympathy or perhaps even anger or how can we help or if we can't help, you know, let's not talk about it. <laughs> mm. um, but perhaps what we should be doing in response is letting their suffering and perseverance of the suffering church in China and Africa, Sri Lanka, maybe we could let their suffering spur us on to a stronger faith and to a uh, a growing effect so that we would be encouraged by them to be more active in our own faith here and not uh, not guilt-ridden that we're not suffering or guilt-ridden that we're not helping them in some way, but rather, no, this is the job of the church. We are to take up our cross, suffer, die daily, and to walk the path Christ walked, which is a walk that leads to our death. And so... How you approach that and process that information, we see here how the the first century church did that. Nick, what does it mean in verse 9 for God to be a living and true God? This is an interesting phrase he uses here. And how does that help us to think about other gods? What do you think? Yeah, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It reminds me of the text in Psalm 135, verses 15 through 17, how the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And so note especially that last part there about there's, there's no breath in their mouths. Idols from which the Thessalonian brethren had turned. Idols are regularly pictured as lifeless scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's how they're talked about in Jeremiah 10 and verse 5. They have to be moved. They have to be carried by people since they're nothing more than wood. Uh, that's verse 8 of Jeremiah 10. So there, there's always this contrast between idols and Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is typically regularly called the living God in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 10, verse 10 in particular there, since I'm stuck there in Jeremiah 10. Um, <laughs> it's a good place. Yeah, idols are false gods, whereas Yahweh God, the one true and only God, he is the true, genuine, real God. And so I think that's uh, the contrast that's drawn here is between idols, dead idols, which are false gods, and the living, true God. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You uh, made some good Old Testament allusions. I mean, you're right. Living God has deep Old Testament roots. It shows up at least 15 times. Uh, wow. True God uh, shows up at least a couple times, most notably, as you said, Jeremiah 10.10 10 has both. Uh, that says, but the Lord Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Yeah, there are real spiritual beings that parade around as gods of the nations. They are created beings and they deceive the world. And I think that they still are trying to lay claim on the nations which Christ took from them at the cross when he disarmed them. So Yahweh, our God, he's the most high God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the creator of all things and is true in every way. So the other gods they exist, but their myths, the way they parade around as Zeus and uh, Baal and all these other characters, those are not true. Uh, they are not living in the sense of the extent through which they can operate. Um, their images are carved into stone, but God's image, God's image is carved into us, humans. That is our status. And so almost reminds me of a, the tax, right? The denarius. Throw me a denarius. Whose image is this? Mm -hmm. Is it Caesar's? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. His image was carved into that coin. But give to God what is God. And it's well known from the Old Testament that God's image is carved into us, into man and woman. So that's an important distinction because we, we hear about these idols, right? Silver, gold, they're nothing, right? But we know that there are real spiritual entities behind those idols. Paul calls them demons in Corinthians. Um, they are real, evil, malevolent spirits. They're not creators. They are fallen, created beings. And that changes our supernatural outlook on the world and our biblical worldview as a whole and how we view spiritual warfare. Well, Nick, verse 10 
we're going to wrap up chapter one. It says that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. And what is the wrath to come? Well, uh, simply, it's the punishment for sin. Uh, Even now, we're told in Romans 1 and verse 18 that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. And that's the thing. God's settled disposition towards sin is wrath. Now, we need to make a, a careful distinction here, I think, because God is hes crazy about people. He loves people. Sent Jesus into the world for people. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son and all that, John three sixteen. But his disposition toward sin is wrath. And so long as a person remains under their sin, they remain under the wrath of God. So at the judgment, I think that's the wrath to come here, is the, the future final judgment. Those outside of Christ who remain under their sin have only wrath to anticipate. Uh, and it is Jesus, though, who delivers us, Christians, from that wrath that is coming upon sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's um, important to distinguish within the context as well. So wrath may come upon a people group, a city. God may wipe out a city. But here it's Jesus that saves us from the wrath to come. And so uh, there may be um, people who die saved as collateral damage in God's wrath upon a whole city, right? Um, But that's not our salvation. Our salvation isn't to live here on earth as long as possible. Uh, We may die uh, because of the bad decisions made by people around us, but the wrath that we are saved from that no one can take from us, uh, that's the wrath which we have been uh, saved from through justification in Christ Jesus. And that is the that is the wrath to come, and it's not here yet in the resurrection. And Paul will talk about the resurrection later in chapters four and five. But um, it is always near, as in as much as we are near to death, <laughs> right? So yeah. Yeah. that's the idea here. We'll pick back up on that and God's wrath, God's judgment, as it pops back up in this theme. Of First Thessalonians. So that's chapter one. That's introduction. That's chapter one, and uh, much more to look forward to in our future podcast. But uh, I think it's time to get to our one-minute sermons. That's right. This is our regular segment during season two. What we do? I have selected a song. Alex doesn't know it. Alex has selected a song. I don't know it. But we're going to give each other these songs. Just a song title from any genre. And what we each have to do is come up with, in one minute, 60 seconds, a text and the beginnings of a sermon. That's right. Uh, So this is because we're preachers, we love preachers, and Sunday's coming. And so we want to give you a little head start here on your sermon if you haven't already started it. So So Nick, uh, whose turn is it? Who goes first this time? Uh, I always forget. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did I go first last time or did you? I think you did. Okay, so you go first this time. <clears throat> All right, Nick, since you're going first, I'm going to pull out this classic song by a man named Joe Esposito. 
<laughs> and Joe Esposito wrote the uh, great song for the uh, soundtrack of the 80s hit Karate Kid. So the Karate Kid soundtrack, Joe Esposito. The song title is You're the Best. You're the best around. <laughs> and nothing's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best. It's like a montage song. It's, it's fantastic. So that's your one-minute sermon, Nick. You're the best by Joe Esposito. And uh, starting... Uh, wait, let me get my timer out. Starting, 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 uh, now. Regularly in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, we get the theme of how great our God is, uh, how awesome he is, how everything about him is the best, and, and I think that's intended to help enhance our worship, is to communicate to God in song, hymns, spiritual songs, in prayer, that he is the best, that we magnify him and we praise his majesty. Uh, all throughout the, the Psalms, you get that theme of you're the best, the best that there is. And so I think that's... That's the sermon, is to (laughs) accentuate just how great our God is. He is the great God, and greatly to be praised. All right. And that's one minute. Did you have a text in there? It's just the Psalms. You have to look up great. (laughs) I couldn't think of one off the top of my head, but it's there. Okay. Very good. good. I'm not going to do all the homework, I guess. (laughs) Pull out your concordance and look up great. That's right. All right. So let's uh, move on now. What's my what's my song, Nick? So we're gonna get in the wayback machine, and uh, we're gonna go back to uh, the band Steppenwolf. <laughs> what? And their song, "Born to Be Wild." Oh. Born to be wild, right? That old classic, that old gem. Dust it off, Alex, and give us a sermon. You have one minute, 60 seconds on the clock, and a go. Born to be wild. You know, being wild sort of comes with the idea of freedom. And yet, in Christ, uh, it is said that we have been freed for freedom. And so a lot of times people look at the Bible and they see rules and regulations and they say, no, we, we want freedom. We don't want God to hinder our good time during the few days and hours which we have here on earth. And so uh, let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, we were born to get the most out of this life while we have it. And yet true freedom knows where boundaries are. True freedom is having the freedom to know the parameters through which we can act, which is good for us, good for those around us, good for the world as a whole. And so it's in Christ in which we can truly be born to be wild and free. It's uh, the best it's, uh, I got. That was Galatians a tough one. 5, right? Yeah. Galatians 5, exactly. <laughs> Man, that was hard. Born to be wild. 
what do you think I'm going to talk about original sin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking of uh, like Ishmael. How he was a wild donkey of a man. He was going to be a wild donkey of a man from birth. Uh, Esau. That was tough. Esau's the same thing. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Get that reformed total depravity out of here. It's Bible. I was born innocent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Woo! Another one-minute sermon for the records. So there you go, preachers or uh, Devo speakers. There's your there's your introduction. And uh, we thought about putting the clips for the songs on here. I know we've had a few requests for that. Turns out that's uh, probably illegal. <laughs> so you're stuck with our renditions. Yeah, since uh, this is a Bible podcast, probably shouldn't do illegal things. <laughs> and uh, you'll have to settle for our karaoke version. So there you go. Well, next time you'll see us for First Thessalonians chapter two. So be sure to tune back in, uh, Nick. What do we remind our audience of? We have the podcast available on different platforms: uh, Google Play Music Store, as well as the iTunes Store. Search Swordplay in those respective places. Download the episodes to your particular smart device, and uh, you can take the podcast with you anywhere. Uh, leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast as well. Share it on social media and all that jazz. Isn't there a web or a email address, Alex, that people can send questions to? That's right, Nick. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Send your questions there. We'll take a look at that, reply back, maybe put it on the air. And that's it for now. Thanks for tuning in to Swordplay. We'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.